First John chapter three, beginning at verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. For if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, for he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to bring his word to life to us, for us this morning. Father God, we come together before you, opening your word. We recognize that your word is like a sword and it pierces us. And we ask that it would do that this morning. And as it pierces us, might it also heal us. Might it also give us an assurance of your love for us and what you've done for us. Might it give us an assurance of a relationship that's been restored with you through your son, Jesus. Father God, I just pray that everything that we, we hear this morning would cause us to, to think and to take to, into account all the things that you've told us. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. We'll pick up at verse 19 this week of chapter 3, 1 John. And it begins with that, that by this statement. John says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. By this is uh, John's therefore. We know that the Apostle Paul uses a therefore, and that therefore is therefore a reason. The by this serves a similar purpose. It helps us see some evidence that supports the conclusion that John is wanting us to get to. And John, in, in this verse, is wanting us to know that we have evidence of the truth of Jesus Christ being in our lives. The word truth occurs eight times in the book of 1 John, and so far we've covered five of them. And in all of those cases, there's a clear compare and contrast statement with those who have the truth of Christ in their lives and those who do not. We can do a brief survey of where we've seen this together and start back at the first chapter in verse 6. John says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 8, the word truth is seen again. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The next chapter, verse 4, says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. We saw this again in the tail end of chapter 2, verse 21. John says, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. And then we'll see truth that again being called out in this portion of, of chapter 3. In verse 18, 
we see evidence of those who understand the, the truth of God's love. It says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In this verse, again, we, we begin with John wanting us to know that we have assurance that the light of Christ is in us, that the truth of who Christ is, is in us. And he wants us to have assurance. He uses the expression, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Now, now truth isn't the only word that's repeated throughout this unit. The other word that comes up a couple of times is the word heart. What, a, what an unusual word. It sounds very hallmark, doesn't it? You talk about the, the heart, right? I love him with all my heart, or I have a broken heart. But the word heart, in the specific context that the scriptures use it, is that which is the emotional seat of how we as human beings make decisions. God created all of the creatures, but humans stand alone in having an intellectual ability and an emotional response by which to make decisions. That word heart, as scripture lays it out, is, is actually better translated like your gut, your bowels, your inners. But it doesn't sound very nice to talk about bowels, so we'll use the word heart. I'll, I'll present to you another word that we'll use as we move through understanding God's word this morning, and that is heart is conscious. Your conscience, that is what your brain tells you and your emotions decide, that drives how we act. And verse 20 of chapter 3 is where we'll begin understanding that as we have confidence in Christ, our conscience is actually not a very good place to have confidence in our standing before God. Our gut, we talk about our, our gut feeling and our gut instinct and our gut reaction, and most of the time, that's not a very reliable way to make decisions. 1 John 3, verse 20 says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Whenever our, our heart condemns us. You see, we're built in with this idea that, that we can take information, run it through a filter, and emotionally make a decision based on that information. The conscience is built in. The problem is, the conscience is built in, broken. We understand from God's word that man was created to have fellowship perfectly with God. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were created and they had perfect harmony with God. They, they took fruit from a certain tree, a tree that was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that, they disobeyed God. They were then standing before God naked and exposed and from that point on, the human conscience is flawed. This is a flawed from birth, and if you don't believe me, try raising a child. A two-year-old child has all the knowledge that for two years of their life, they've been cared for and nurtured by their mother. Yet that child has the ability to look his mother in the eye and defiantly say, no. With all the information, they still make the wrong choice. Our conscience isn't very reliable. See, we can take information that we have and we can still make the wrong decision with it. We can justify our actions. That's a uniquely human ability. To illustrate this, I'll be honest with you for just a moment. At the exit near my home, there is a large posted sign that says, no turn on red. 
That sign informs me that I should not turn my vehicle right on red. I know this. I know that this carries with it a consequence, but when I'm there in the evening and there's not much traffic and I'm kind of tired and kind of hungry, my conscience, my, my emotions say, it doesn't matter, I'm gonna turn right on red. And that's just a, a simple illustration, but we're uniquely capable as broken, sinful human beings to justify whatever action we'd like to do. In the specific context of what we see in God's word in the book of John, there are a couple of commandments that he's laid out for us. We've talked, and throughout the Old Testament, we've established that there are 613 different rules that God laid out. It is impossible for us to follow those, so Christ boils it down to just two. Those two we should know well by now. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second commandment is to love your brother. So if we talk about our conscience and we just go with those two things, the conscience will tell us that we know this and it should inform this behavior. But it doesn't. The conscience of the natural man actually discards that information to arrive at its own conclusion. Let's look at Romans chapter 1 together for a moment. Creator God gives us as human beings life. We can open our eyes in the morning and behold creation all around us. A sunrise, nature, all of these things that declare that there is a creator God. But yet, our sinful conscience suppresses that truth. Let's read beginning at verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The conscience sees creator and says, still going to do what I desire. The conscience for the, the natural man also, as it gives us indications of what we should do and what we shouldn't do, we can blow past that proverbial stop sign. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, uses the expression that the instant, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. What a unique expression. That expression is once flesh is burned, it no longer feels. It can't feel hot. It can't feel cold. It's seared. And the human heart's able to do that with the conscience. The conscience can tell us what's right and wrong, and if you, you disobey that enough times, you don't hear it anymore. That's why the, the, state, the state of our conscience condemns us before God. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10 says, The heart, or the conscience, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give everyone according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, what about the conscience for the one who has an understanding of what Christ has done for him or her? What about the conscience of the one who has been regenerated through the work of the Holy Spirit? John Wesley describes the conscience of the believer as having three functions, and these are very legal terms. The conscience will witness. 
The conscience will judge and the conscience will sentence. It's like a courtroom scenario, right? But what do we know about this? The Holy Spirit does those things and and the conscience in our natural state does those things and a witness of our conscience might call it wrong. You observe a traffic accident and you can ask three different people what they saw and they all come up with different reports. It's not always a witness that's reliable. A conscience might also pass judgment. For the believer, we've been declared innocent, yet we have a spiritual adversary that will accuse us and tell us we should still carry a burden of guilt. And ultimately, then there's the the sentencing, but the conscience can get it wrong. That's why the next statement is so so much more important. God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than our hearts. But before we unpack that and explain all that's there, I want to give you a, a brief analogy with regards to the functioning of the conscience. Even in the case of the unbeliever, it is not where our confidence ought to reside. Our, conf- our, our conscience is unreliable. One analogy that's commonly held is that a conscience is a lot like a check engine light. Now, for those of you who, like me, have owned very well-used European cars, we understand that the check engine light is not very reliable. It might not come on, and that doesn't mean you're not about to call a tow truck. It, it might also come on, and you can drive for hundreds of miles, and there's not actually a problem there. That check engine light's not all that reliable. Paul explains this beautifully in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And what he says is that his conscience is unreliable, but he stands before God, who ultimately does the witnessing, the judging, and the sentencing. Paul says this. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You see how Paul states that? He says, my conscience might equip me, my conscience might indict me, but God has the ultimate word. And that's precisely what John is saying in verse 20 of chapter 3. He says, if my conscience condemns me, God is greater and he knows everything. Does that sound like good news? Trick question. The good news is coming. Don't worry, we'll get to good news. The good news isn't yet. This is actually very heavy news. Paul says, I stand before God and God knows everything. John Calvin explains this in a clear statement. He says, John proves on the other hand that they in vain possess the name and appearance of Christians who have not the testimony of a good conscience. For if anyone is conscious of his own guilt and is condemned by his own heart, much less can he escape the judgment of God. In other words, if your conscience tells you you're guilty, God knows everything and he knows that we stand with sin before him. God has the final word. The word that John uses there is that God is greater than our condemning hearts. The word greater comes up three times in 1 John. One is in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 4. It says, For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It also says in 
chapter 5, verse 9, that if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. The word is megas. So much bigger than, so much greater than. So if our conscience makes a call, we need to understand that God ultimately sees and knows everything. If God sees and knows everything, every human heart stands separated from God from birth. Because of original sin and because of the tendency of our own heart, we're separated from God. And the fact that God knows everything doesn't initially bring us peace and comfort. On the contrary, it's quite scary. The book of Hebrews says it is a horrendous thing to fall into the hands of a living God. This God that John wants us to have fellowship with, this, this God that, that Jesus came to give us communion with, stands first and foremost as a holy judge. But we'll get to the good news. Understanding this aspect that our conscience can't be trusted, we see again in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Paul writes, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secret thoughts, the, the secrets of men, by Christ Jesus. You see that? The conscience bears witness and those thoughts could either accuse or excuse. But the one who has the ultimate say is this God who discerns the secret thoughts of men. Our conscience can't come from our, our, our confidence can't come from our conscience. It has to come through a right standing with Jesus Christ. That's why verse 21 seems really hard to understand. We go from first scene that if our hearts condemn us, God is greater and, and he also would condemn us. Then we see in, in verse 21, John changes his tone a little bit and he says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Track with me. Throughout the entire book of John, John has worked with contrasts. Light, dark, life, death, hatred, love. But this, we need to understand just a bit differently here. He's, he's explaining to us here that our, our confidence comes from what we rather see in verse 23. So we have to work backwards from this understanding before we can get to a place of confidence. Verse 23 is going to tell us this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. To believe in the name of Jesus Christ, that is our confidence. So how then do we understand verse 21? If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. John Calvin's commentary, again, is helpful here. He says, in understanding this verse, here, however, arises a greater difficulty, which seems to leave no confidence in the whole world. For who can be found whose heart reproves him in nothing? There is no way the human heart in and of itself can stand before God and say, I'm innocent. Why? Because we're not. We stand guilty before God as a holy and righteous judge. We've talked about the 
internal change that comes in the human heart, the regeneration that comes through the Holy Spirit, and the, the outward response of that is to see obedience and righteousness and love. And in of ourselves, we don't produce those things. So we would stand before God indicted, guilty. Psalm, 30, Psalm 24, verses three and four, ask a question about who has a clean heart? It's a remarkable set of rhetorical questions that, that David writes. He said, who, should, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who can enter God's holy house but he who has clean hands and a pure heart? Answer to that question, nobody. No one but God. To understand this, I want to take a brief detour to the Old Testament. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. And we have an interchange between God and Moses. And in this interchange, much like we heard from Brother Rob as we looked at Hebrews chapter 4, there's a talk of God taking his people into the promised land. He's going to take them into what represents, symbolically, his salvation, a right relationship with him. And he explains to Moses on what basis God is going to do this. And I want you to look at what it says, keeping in mind that heart is conscience. Starting at verse 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 9. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. In verse 5, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of those nations that the Lord is driving out before you. And then again in, in verse 6, know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. The condition of the human heart throughout all of Scripture, same story. If we skim read down just a little bit further in Deuteronomy chapter 9, what we end up with is, while Moses is having this conversation with God on the mountain, the rest of the people are already showing the nature of their hearts being disobedient and unrighteous and unloving, and they, they build a golden calf, and they worship that instead of God. They break that first commandment. And God's angry. We see that he's angry with Aaron. Verse 19 says, For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you, so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron at that time, at that same time. You, you see what's happening here? The posture of the human heart is exposed. It's stubborn, it's unrighteous, and God is rightfully angry as a holy judge. But, God, if you move to verse 26 of the same chapter, what we now see is that Moses is acting as a mediator for God's people with their unclean hearts, with their guilty consciences. And what Moses does is remarkable here. It says, at verse 25 rather, it says, So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights, because the Lord said that he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. What's happening here is that Moses is a mediator between God and his guilty people. He goes and for 40 days 
he cries out to God on behalf of his people. This prefigures all that we see explained in Hebrews chapter 4. If we could go there together, we see the remarkable good news beginning to take shape. This is all heavy, right? We're guilty before a holy God. God judges. Verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 4 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. But the good news in verse 14 is that there's now another mediator. It's not Moses. It's Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the God-man come in human form. Look at verse 14. It says, Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. How many days was Jesus in the desert being tempted? Forty. And, and he, the greater Moses, goes between God and man. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, But there is one God and one man, and the mediator is Jesus Christ between God and man. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. And so continuing in that passage in Hebrews chapter 4, we're told that, that Jesus is a high priest who understands the human condition. He understands the human heart. He knew all of those temptations, yet he did not sin. The perfect spotless lamb, he gave his life. In fact, that's the verse that we started with reading today in 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And he said, the guilt of their conscience, I'll pay for those sins. And because of that, now we have a confident assurance. He is a mediator between us and God. And that's why we understand verse 21 of John 3 as we do. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Our heart doesn't condemn us because Jesus declares us innocent. He's a high priest. He's a mediator between us and God. Praise God for that. As we move through verse 22 of 1 John chapter 3, John shifts his, his focus a bit from the, the conscience, and he says, now that we have this confidence, we can step to the Lord in prayer and confidence. The author of Hebrews says the same thing. We can step to his throne of grace with confidence. The fear of his judgment has been replaced by a fellowship with him. Verse 22 says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. This is a difficult verse to understand. We think that now that we have a right relationship with God, we can ask him for whatever we want. There are other understandings of scripture that say that if we name it, we can claim it. If we say something to the Lord in prayer, that he's going to give us that particular blessing. Church, we name him first and claim him first. The, the first prayer that the believer is to have 
is reflected really clearly back in verse 1 of chapter 2, the same letter. My little children, I am writing to you these things that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And verse 2 uses a big fancy word, and it says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. The first prayer that we ought to have as we draw near to, to Christ is asking for his forgiveness, repenting and turning to him and asking for him to clear our guilty conscience. All of those things that we've done to dismiss the information he's given us about what's right and what's wrong and to, to sin against him, ask him for forgiveness. And the, the right and the privilege that we have now as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ is that we can ask for his forgiveness daily. We have the assurance that we can draw near to him and ask him for forgiveness. But John explains again later in this same letter the confidence that we have in now having fellowship with God to go to him in prayer. Chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. What an assurance that is of knowing that because Christ has restored our relationship with God, we can go to him in prayer. Praise God for that privilege. We pray then according to how Christ taught us in the Lord's Prayer. We pray, our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we pray in accordance with his will. And his will is not a mystery to us because we're no longer strangers from him. We've been brought near. As we reflect on what it means to, to pray in the name of Jesus Christ, we understand that the first prayer is that of asking him to forgive us. And he is faithful and just to do just that. We pray in his name. John chapter 16, and it's remarkable to think that John who wrote this letter also wrote this gospel and heard Christ give this explanation of, of what it means to pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, verse 26, Jesus says, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I have come from the Father, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. But what he has done for us gives us free access to ask the Father in his name. This is important. Again, the verse I mentioned, 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. There is no need for the assured believer to pray to any other intermediary. No vicar, no priest, not the mother of Jesus, but to the Father because of the name of Jesus. That's the access and the assurance that we have. Confidence to boldly approach his throne of grace. Now, verse 23, I know I gave you the, the three different points. The points that I laid out here 
are not exactly in the order that John presents them, but this is the one that is the most imperative for us to understand, and that is all of this assurance starts with the believing in the name of Jesus. Verse 23 says, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as he has commanded us. So there's two parts to what we're supposed to obey here. And this is not just a, a, a formula. This is his commandment. This is what the human race is called to do, to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ and to accept the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Throughout this epistle, John rejoices us to present to us the name of Jesus Christ. And and throughout scripture, there are many names to refer to Jesus. There's Emmanuel, God with us. There's Prince of Peace. There's Mighty God. There's Counselor. But in this statement, we see the essence of who Jesus Christ is. And that's why we're here together this morning, to understand who this Jesus Christ is. And I can think of no better way to explain it to you than to let Peter and John do that. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. And understand what it means to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4, we'll start at verse 1, and we'll pause along the way to understand what's happening here. First of all, Peter and John, a couple of chapters earlier, healed a guy. They, they saw and with compassion felt in their hearts compassion, and they healed in the name of Jesus. And because of this healing, some people are upset about what they're doing. And so Peter and John are being called to the carpet by the religious authorities of the day. Verse one says, and as they were standing, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. You see the response? Great annoyance. When we think about the name of of Jesus Christ, we need to understand that it provokes a response in the human conscience. For those who have not yet believed on Jesus Christ, that response might be annoyance. Maybe you watch the internet with the Super Bowl ads about Jesus. There were many who who found that bothersome, and these religious leaders, they didn't want to hear any more about Jesus. Peter, John, would you guys please pipe down? So look what they did in verse 3, and they arrested them. And put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Praise God, that name that they preached, that resurrection that they preached, the name was heard, and the name was believed upon, and it it produced transformation. And what the Bible says are more than 5,000 men. Verse 5, as the story unfolds, it says, On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. When Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, all of whom were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? What's in that name? Who's giving you the authority to perform miracles? Who's giving you the authority to preach on this controversial topic of resurrection. And Peter's response in verse 8, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, 
by what means this man was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. He, he lays out who this is. This is Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, the carpenter's son, the one who traveled for three years preaching the gospel, reading in synagogues, forgiving sins. It's in that name that Peter and John do this healing. In that name, there is no shame for them in proclaiming that name. In verse 11, Peter goes on to say, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Verse 12, and there is no salvation, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Are we clear on who this Jesus is? This is Jesus the God-man, co-eternal, co-creator. And he came in human form. He put up with all the things that, that humans have to put up with, being hungry, being tired, being cold, experiencing pain. And he was tempted, yet did not sin. And he of his own will, we talked last week, it's not just the will of the Father that he'd surrendered the Son, it was his own will that he laid down his life. He was crucified on our behalf. That name that's above all name is a name that would invoke for some annoyance, for some hatred that crucified him. But that's the only name by which there's forgiveness of sins. That is the only name by which there is a right relationship possible with God the Father. There are many who will say there's different paths to God. But if we understand this verse and we understand the reality of what Christ has done, there is only one way. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given by men by which we must be saved. And I'll end with skipping down to verse 18. I, I love the defiant assurance and confidence that Peter and John have. Look what it says, verse 17. It says, But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to, to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened." that remarkable? They're so assured of their confidence in who Jesus was and what he had done on their behalf, but they couldn't help but tell that story. And because of that, we as New Covenant believers are here today and we can call on that same name for salvation. Philippians chapter 2 recounts what Christ did for us in humility, laying down his life, and, and as it describes his sacrifice for us. Verse 9 of that chapter says, therefore, because of all the things that Christ had done, taking on flesh and surrendering his, his life in obedience, it says, therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the name that we believe. That's the name that we're called and commanded to trust in for our salvation. There's no lack of assurance 
if we believed in that name. And from that, the second commandment, we're enabled through the power of the Holy Spirit to follow, and that is to love one another just as he commanded us. If we rightly understood what he has paid for us, how can we not respond with benevolence and love towards others? I want to move down to the last verse of this precious chapter. And this is the, the third part of, of what we begin to understand. We, we believe first in his name. We, we ask in his name. And then we can confide in his name. The confidence that comes through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This last verse says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. This, by this is the third time we've seen it, and it gives us evidence that we know that we are in him and that he is in us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And this last statement talks about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and we've seen this throughout the precious book of 1 John. We've seen that the Holy Spirit seals us, guarantees us of a future inheritance, informs us of the truth, and now works as a helper or a companion to our broken conscience. What, what we might have gotten wrong in our natural flesh, now through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we're aided in obeying his commandments. What was impossible for us before, we now have the ability to obey. Whoever keeps his commandments and abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the Spirit that he's given us. That's where our assurance comes from. If we're going through and we're experiencing doubt in our faith and our position before God, we have the Holy Spirit to reassure us. If you're wrestling with the question of whether or not you have a right standing before God this morning, praise God, that's a sign of life. That's a sign of life. Dead people don't check their pulse. If we're asking that question, God is already beginning to work in us. But if we're wavering in our faith, go back to the confidence that Jesus paid it all. The mediator, as many times as I've read 1 John chapter 3, verse 21, I never understood that that was still part of the bad news, right? Our conscience could accuse us. Our conscience could acquit us. Either way, God has the last word. But our defense attorney, Christ, gives us that confidence. And because of that confidence, we can ask in his name, and we can rest assured. Let's get, go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come before you and we thank you and we praise you for the gift of your son Jesus. We thank you that you are a holy and righteous God and that there is a way in which we can have fellowship with you, a way in which we can have a right relationship with you. And that's through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's through the, the crucified Jesus, the, the arisen Jesus, that we have confidence to approach you. We thank you and praise you, God, for this assurance. I ask that through the power of the Holy Spirit, any who are here today that don't have that assurance, that they would examine closely your word, that they would understand the Christ of scriptures, that they would call on you to be saved. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. In Jesus' name. Amen.